The Atlantic League isn't the only one with interesting rules. Find out what we mean on this week's episode of the Indie Ball Report podcast. Alright, back again. Episode number 112 of the Indie Ball Report podcast. I'm Nick. He's Will. And we are here to cover everything and anything in the wonderful world of independent league baseball. And before we start talking, you know, about the news of the week and all of that, I do want to point out one fun fact. After next week's show, so not this week, but next week, we can actually start talking about like baseball related topics. That's right. That's exciting stuff right there. Exactly. Like we are only like, what, three weeks away, just under that from the American Association starting up. Yeah. I mean, we are we are getting there. And speaking of baseball stuff, before we get too deep into the news uh, this week, Nick, I just want to congratulate you because if any if anybody listening now listened to last week's show and heard our uh, heard our rosters for um, make it indie ball team or whatever. You said you pointed out kind of a, like, of course, when we're talking major leaguers, we don't know if they have any interest in coming to the Atlantic League. It's just fun to talk about. And so then Nick points out Logan Morrison. And how about the High Point Rockers signing Logan Morrison this week? So congratulations on that, Nick. Yeah, see, every once in a while, if you just keep throwing darts in the dark, one's going to be a bullseye sooner or later. And I just happen to get lucky. That or Pete Fish slash Billy Horn listens to the show and said, you know what, he'd be a great get. And and made yeah. some phone calls. Yeah, certainly impressive. So, yeah, I, uh, I, that 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 was commendable. I don't think I could pull something like that off. So, so now we're sitting here waiting on uh, Rick Porcello to become a Long Island Duck. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's the most likely spot. They get all the former Mets, and technically, he is a former Met. He is a former Met, but I I, I hesitate to call him a uh, a well liked former Met. Yeah, so I guess it's that. We do have some news this week. I got to say, it is Frontier League heavy, but the Frontier League is not, you know, getting top billing, which is something we thought like by the middle of the week would be the case. But thank God for uh, the Pioneer League. And with that, we're going to jump right into this because the Pioneer League, uh, I guess they saw what the Atlantic League was doing and said, we're going to get some very interesting rules going ourselves because why not really? And... Well, they unveiled a series of new rules that go from a batter that can now appeal uh, a check swing down to either the baseline umpires or, you know, you got your designated pinch hitter, your designated pinch runner, an extra umpire on the field. And then, of course, the rule that's gotten the most attention, which is they're not going to play extra innings. They are instead going to end a game with, I believe they called it a home runoff, but it's really a home run derby. Uh, it's what you saw in the American or All American Baseball Challenge last year, uh, if you remember that. And uh, it's a uh, it's an interesting way of doing things. I gotta be honest, it's probably the least interesting of all the rules, save the extra umpire on the field. I gotta be honest, the, the everything else is a lot more interesting to me. I have to agree with that. I, I think there's a lot more that have like a direct impact on the game but to be honest but just to talk more about the the home run derby i don't know whatever they want to call it it's a home run derby uh in in extra innings we did see it a little bit in the all-american baseball challenge it actually happened in uh one of the games that i went to uh between the jersey wise guys and the new jersey jackals and listen it was a lot of fun It, it really was a lot of fun and i don't mind it just because uh you don't want to put the extra strain on the pitching staffs in the Atlantic League, you can find guys. In the Pioneer League, I don't know if it's going to be as easy to find people uh, just to come off the street and pitch for you on a given day, uh, like you could say in the Atlantic in the Atlantic League, for example. Somerset for for a couple of years had Bobby Blevins essentially on call to come make a start uh, whenever whenever they were desperate for a starting pitcher that night. And so I, I don't think that's really possible for the Pioneer League, not to mention they're a new league and we don't really know what kind of draw they have. And they are uh, they are in a more developmental role anyway. So I I think it's fun. It's certainly fun. Uh, it's, it's a good way to get fans engaged. Uh, 
now you'd hope this is not like that you'd really hope th- it's an it was not it's not something i would ever want to see like in the atlantic league or like in minor league baseball or god forbid at the major league level i would never want to see something like this but for the, you know for the pioneer league i, I don't i don't mind it because i don't view it so much as they're trying it to see how it works i think everyone knows that it doesn't have a legitimate future however what i will say is that at least just because pitching is going to be hard to come by i it, it would be very bad to play very long games and stuff like that so i i think it's i think it's it makes sense it's a lot of fun and it's a good we it's a good way to keep to keep them engaged if, if the if it goes to extra innings and I, I think it's fun it's not a rule i think has any sort of future in, in the higher levels of professional baseball but you know for the pioneer league it's fun it keeps the fan the fans engaged and uh and i'm, I'm sure the players We'll have some fun with it too. Although, I mean, when you come coming down the stretch and your playoff positions are on the line and stuff like that, maybe it's not going to be the most popular thing because you want these uh, these playoff spots and potential championships won on the field. Uh, but you know, I think especially in the early months of the year, why not? Yeah, I, I don't see an issue with this. I think you made a good point with it, how easy is it going to be to get more players in the Pioneer League. I've noticed. Uh, from just a lot of the teams when they announce their signings, you know, they put out the low graphics saying, oh, like, this is what the player looks like. This is where they're from. This is the last thing they played for. And for a lot of them, the teams they last played for are a lot of kind of the pop-up circuit league teams. So you'll see like uh, the Nerds Herd, which is the from the Juliet pop-up league there. Or you'll see uh, guys from the Jersey Wise guys or whatever it may be. And I'm not going to say anything about the players in those leagues, but I mean, we do know that they're not exactly the same level that you'd expect to see from a regular Frontier League team or a regular Atlantic League team or, you know, from, you know, the established league team. So it's clear that they're in a weird position, plus in the age range that the Pioneer League's trying to get, which is mainly your 25 and younger group. That's also kind of what the Frontier League's looking to get too. So already you have a lot of guys that are going to be in the Frontier League, the Pioneer League's just not going to be able to get. So getting players is an issue. Plus, like you pointed out, when you're an established team like Somerset, you kind of have your list of usual suspects, I'll call them, where, you know, they're good for a pop-up start every once in a while. If you go, all right, we're having a different guy come in. He's going to be in in a day or two, but we need a starter for tonight. Can you come in and just, you know, throw five innings for us? We'd appreciate it if you could do that. And they know enough guys, they've had enough guys throughout the years where that's not that hard to accommodate. And you have the relationships not only in the front office, but also with the managers to be able to get guys in there. That also I have to imagine with like Frontier League teams and American Association teams and Atlantic League teams, they're in more, I guess, heavily populated areas too, which is something that makes it a lot easier to find ballplayers in as opposed to being out in, you know, Ogden, Utah, or uh, I guess it'd be now Northern Colorado uh, for the Owls that will start next season. But uh, regardless, whichever teams you want to pick, like Missoula, Montana, or like Idaho Falls, it, like these are not exactly thriving metropolises, and getting to and from them is not exactly easy. So I imagine if you sign a guy, they kind of need like 48 hours to get out there. It's it's going to be a lot more difficult. Uh, as far as the actual rule goes, I really don't care. Like, it's a one way of ending a game. Is this, like, any less authentic to the game than starting a runner on second? Not particularly. And like we've discussed many times in this show, not only from just the pure, like we have just we're saying, baseball side of it where you can't really use the arms to go 15 innings. There's also an economic side of things where, after really like the seventh inning, you're starting to really run into the red because you're not selling concessions anymore. And I got to imagine for like every extra inning, starting in the 10th, you're going to lose about 50% of the people that are in the stands because people just do not want to stay for a minor league baseball game that goes into extra innings. I mean, there's a lot of people that don't even want to stay for a major league game that goes into extra innings. So when you have uh, a source of entertainment like a baseball game, like an independent league game, where most people, they just kind of went for a night out, 
they're going to tap out after the 10th inning. It's just the reality of it. So if you can go with a home run derby that may pique their interest to keep them in the ballpark a little bit longer, or at the very least wrap up the game quicker, then such is life. Uh, the actual specifics around the home run derby is each team gets to pick who they want to throw the uh, th- pitches to the guys for the home run derby. They pick one guy to go up and swing at five pitches. Uh, each side does this at the end of round one. Whoever has the most home runs wins. If it's tied, they go to round two and so on and so forth until you have a winner. So it, it's not like it's going to be this horribly long thing or this kind of weird abomination. It's really just kind of throwing batting practice in a way. So I, I'm perfectly cool with it. And uh, yeah, like I said, this is probably one of the least interesting of these rules for me. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I just think it's, especially in the Pioneer League, it's a way to make things fun. You're right. No, especially for a Pioneer League, a Pioneer League game, the amount of people that are going to stay for a 12 inning game, I mean, maybe like a couple dozen, to be honest with you. Yeah. So I I think I think this is a good way. It ends quick and it's fun. It, it, and I'm sure the players the players would probably enjoy it too. It, exactly. It's a good time. Exactly. Uh, moving on to the, I guess we'll go with the check swing rule, which is just a uh, batter can appeal a check swing down to, you know, first or third base. Previously, only an umpire could do that or a catcher could do that. But now, you know, the batter can do that. I think that's a lot more interesting because, I mean, it gives the batter a bit more freedom to go, no, no, I, I didn't swing on that one. You'll see that I didn't swing on that. And I mean, we all know how umpires can be a bit flippant at times to not make the right call mistakes happen and that kind of goes hand in hand with adding an extra umpire on the field it just kind of is like an extra check through i think where having more eyes or more ability to you know maybe correct a mistake or prevent a mistake i don't see what the problem is with that and i think it could be it may just be one of those things where it's like oh this will be a big thing and it turns out to be nothing but i think it could be very interesting and it could be a uh a cool thing to watch. I absolutely love this rule because how many times during a game, I mean, and listen, I, I don't have a problem appealing check swings, but how many times do you see like during a game where a hitter checks his swing or maybe just goes around and the home plate umpire calls it himself at a home plate anyway. And then the common complaint from the manager or the, or the hitter really isn't, um, it it really isn't about the call. It's like you you don't want to check that. Yeah, like you don't like you had to make that call by yourself. And it's one of the things that I, I just never understood. Like why why could the pitcher and the catcher always ask for one, but the hitter couldn't? If they thought that the umpire didn't see something or made a mistake, it takes the same amount of time. So um, to me, this makes a lot of sense. I could potentially see this rule working its way up. If, it, if, if it's a success, and to be honest with you, I, I think this is a good example of a rule that should be tested. Yeah. I'm, I wouldn't even mind seeing this in the Atlantic League, to be honest with you. Uh, I, it's like, for example, oh, speaking of check swing rules, like last year's like Atlantic, well, I say, I say last year, I mean 2019. Yeah. Uh, the 2019's Atlantic League rule with a, a more batter-friendly and a batter-friendly check swing rule. And essentially, that was all the rule said, and nobody had any idea what that meant. Like, the yeah. umpires didn't know what it meant. The players and the coaches didn't know what it, me- what it meant. And so it was yeah. just people guessing on the fly. It was a complete disaster. Uh, but I think this keep the check swing rule the same but just give everybody the same rights if a hitter thinks he checked his swing he has every he should have every right to uh, ask for an appeal the same way a pitcher would and the same way a catcher could it makes a lot of sense and and i'm a big fan of this one to be honest with you yeah absolutely this is just like the perfect kind of like harmless rule like what could possibly go wrong with this rule and really is it going to slow down the game all that much no it's not like how much time is going to add on like an extra five ten seconds maybe if that even like it, I, I really do like that rule. So uh, with that, we go to the kind of, I guess, the more strategy heavy rules, because I could see this being implemented in a very interesting way, which is the designated pinch hitter and the designated pinch runner. So the designated pinch hitter rule, which is essentially a carbon copy of the designated pinch runner rule. So when I say hitter here, just sub out for runner, uh, you can pinch hit for a player and have that player that is subbed out still eligible to play the field. So essentially, let's say 
you want to sub out your shortstop for an at-bat, but you don't want to lose his glove in the field, you can have one guy designated on your bench that can come in, I believe it's just once a game, hit for that shortstop, and then the shortstop can go back out and play the field. This can go for anywhere in your lineup, and it can be used at any time, but it's a once-a-game type of thing. That, and the same thing goes for a pinch runner. Uh, like I said, you designate one guy on your bench saying this is going to be our designated pinch runner for the game. Let's say you get a really slow corner outfielder and he's on first base and you're like, this is a really a time where I'd like to move that runner on first into scoring position, but I don't want to lose this guy's bat because it's the seventh inning. We may have a chance to come up again, so I don't want to lose that bat. You could sub out for the pinch runner and still keep that bat in the lineup. So I really like it. I think there's a lot of strategy that could be used here if it's used correctly. It also has a precedent. I'm pretty confident I've seen this rule used in, say, softball before. I think it was also a Little League rule as well, too. So this is the kind of rule where, again, I don't have any issue with it. I think it's a strategy thing that could definitely help out. And it's not like one of these weird kind of experimental rules we see in the Atlantic League that really just comes out of thin air. This has precedent before on Diamond Sports, so I'm really, I really like both of them. Yeah, it does have precedent. I've actually, um, you know, there, while I'm uh, while I'm up at school up at Hofstra University, I've gotten the chance to call a couple softball games, and this is a rule. Uh, you can you can pinch hit for somebody, you can pitch run for somebody, and you you could re-enter some uh, a starter in once per game. So it's the same same basic rule, and I don't mind. I, I don't I don't mind trying this. It's funny. I think when we talked about rules a while ago, like the, just getting crazy mm-hmm. uh, with rules, uh, it, it must have been. It might it might have even been like before I was a full time co host on this show. Honestly, uh, where I wanted uh, not even just like the designated pinch hitter rule, but like at like once a game, you can say I want blank hitting right now. Like the yeah. angels saying, like, yeah, I-, I want Mike Trout hitting right now. Like, and you could do it once per game. And, I remember this one. This is from the beginning of 2020. Yes, when so we had th- you on this, the first time as a guest. Yeah, I remember this. Yes. So not quite there, uh, but uh, and I would I would love to see that rule tried personally. Yeah. That would be that would be incredible. Uh, but you know, I-, I agree with what you said. I think. Um, it does have precedent. It could be used in a really interesting way. It could be used to give people days off. Uh, it really does uh, have a lot of uses for guys with speed. It lets there's a lot of strategy that comes uh, that comes into play here, and you can utilize uh, you can utilize really every type of player u- using this rule. And I, I really think it'll be interesting to see how managers choose to implement it uh, during the game. And just that there's not a lot of risk involved into it. So you can even do it for like as a platoon guy that's facing a, a lefty reliever, but you know, they might have like a, a really good righty closer. You want, so you want to pinch hit um, your, uh, your right handed hitter who uh, hits lefties really well in the seventh, but still have the, uh, but then put back in your starter. So he could potentially phase the right handed closer in the ninth when your hitter is like a lefty. So that, that that's kind of how I'm viewing this. I'm not 100% sure if this is something I'd like to see uh, in the in the higher levels of professional baseball, but you know I, I think it's worth a shot. The, these are ones. Uh, this is these are one of the rules that I really do think is worth a shot, and I'm interested to see uh, how it ends up. And it's one of these rules I, I, that I don't mind testing out at all. Yeah, no, I, I really am curious to see how this goes, and I, like these are the kind of rules. Like to be honest with all of them. Where if these are the type of experimental rules they were using in, say, the Atlantic League, with the exception, of course, being the home run rule, I think there would be pushback on that. I don't think you'd see much pushback on the rest of them. Like, no. Like, as far as we've kind of seen, most of the Atlantic League rules you get a little bit of grumbling about, but by and large, people are cool with. And then you have normally your one or two that people really do not like at all see the mound. But... Like, honestly, all of these are pretty standard, to be honest. Like, none of them are that crazy. Yeah, I don't think so at all. I, I think they're, I, I, I think they, they all have some sort of precedent. Well, maybe not the home run. Well, even the home run derby yeah. has some sort of precedent. I'm not sure how much they paid attention to the all American uh, baseball challenge, but I, I, I think, I think you're right. I think I'm not sure I'd like to see the home run rule in the, the in the uh, Atlantic League, but the other ones I, I wouldn't mind at all. As long as you want to give uh, pushing the mound back to the Pioneer League, we can make a trade. 
I mean, I feel like that's one of those deals where it's like, oh god, they have ten years left at twelve million a year. You're gonna need to attach a couple draft picks for me to take that contract. Yeah, no, or or maybe a bad contract for a bad contract. So yeah. So I guess with that, we can go on to the Frontier League news now. Uh, Monday, the league announced who their new CEO would be. It is John Danos. From 2003 to 2014, he was the chief operating officer of Opening Day Partners, who opened up, or owned and operated, rather, uh, four teams that were in the Atlantic League. They would be Sugarland, York, Lancaster, and Southern Maryland. Uh, and he was also on the Atlantic League Board of Directors. Prior to that, he was an executive with Maryland Baseball LLC. They owned and operated three Oriole affiliates, the one in Frederick, Bowie, and Salesburg, or Salisbury. Um, and then after his time running uh, Opening Day Partners, he went to be the executive director of athletics at the University of New Hampshire. This is, uh, I think, a tremendous hire here. He's a guy that has experience in minor league baseball and more than that, experience in running independent league baseball. Sure, it's a different league, but he knows how each of these teams operate, what they need to be successful, and certainly all four of those teams have been successful. Sugarland, of course, being arguably the most successful of them all, both on the field and then what they as an organization have accomplished now, of course, being owned by the... Uh, by the Houston Astros being the AAA affiliate now. So he's well-versed in this world of independent league baseball. He knows what goes into it. And that's clearly something that's important to know if you're going to be the head of what is really the oldest independent league, or I guess partnership league now. That term's never going to sound right. But he just, he seems like a pretty comprehensive hire. I got no complaints hiring John Danos. Yeah, that's exactly uh, my, what my thought process uh, here was, because really when I'm looking uh, at people who get hired in uh, in a lot of these roles, like, for example, a CEO uh, like of a, ma of a major indie ball league, they got to have experience. One, in minor league baseball, that, that's great, but it, it's even better to have experience uh, and running successful uh, franchises in uh, in the Atlantic League uh, and in indie ball. He understands how the business operates. He understands, you know, some of the struggles uh, that that these that these teams face. So I think it's a really good hire, um, especially in this time of transition. A lot of transition for the Frontier League. Uh, we we talked a lot about on last week's show how this is going to be um, a, a kind of a tough year for the Frontier League in the sense that. Um, you're not going to have those Canadian teams. You're going to be essentially working with a traveling team as well, and uh, and and we really can't wait for the Frontier League to uh, to really reach its full potential once the pandemic has gone by the wayside. I think it's going to be so 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 much fun that when the Canadian teams are back and the league is is pumping at, at 16 teams and bringing in a guy like Danos. Uh, who who is so much experience running minor running minor league teams uh, in working in the Atlantic League? I think it it makes it makes all the sense in the world, honestly. And I think uh, he's a good guy to help guide the Frontier League into this. Um, See, I was, you know, Nick, I was about to say guide into the new frontier, but I, I was, but I caught myself. Those are the kind of jokes we make around here. So, so should I, so should I, I should I have just went with that? You gotta, you gotta go with the wordplay. That's half All of our right, appeal. So. That's, that's my whole Twitter presence. He's the right guy to lead the Frontier League into the new frontier. There, there we go. There you I'll go. See, there week. we go. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna give you some applause into the mic there. I hope it picks it up. Thank you. Thank but, you. But yeah, I I agree with all that. He he is the perfect guy to go into this new frontier with, and uh, I I am very interested to see what the what the next few stages are gonna be for the Frontier League. Because again according to to the Frontier League themselves, or I should say according to uh, the owner of the Miners slash Jackals there, they want to be a 20-team league. Right now they're at 16. That leaves four spots there. We know the Atlantic League has every intention of adding four more teams. We know it's going to be Hagerstown. We know it's going to be Staten Island. And two spots are still kind of floating in the midair there. So... They're both overlapping a lot of territory as well, so it's going to be interesting to see if they are dead set on 20 still, 
or if 16 is the number because I mean really either or would not be surprising so uh, I'm interested to see what the the Danos era looks like um I've been on this train for a while Nick about the 20 team league yeah I don't I just don't think it's gonna happen see again like I'm not I'm not saying it's not going to because I I understand how it could I certainly understand how it could. I agree with you in the sense of I don't think it's very likely. I don't think there's four really, realistically, six other markets because two are going to go to the Atlantic League, and I just kind of assume they're going to be on the East Coast. And that's yeah. assuming the Atlantic League does not try to snipe a Frontier League franchise. I mean, the the rumors around Rockland slash New York. They've, Rockland. Yeah, and they've, they've existed since they were founded. So I'm, you know, you, there's only so much stock you can keep putting in a rumor that's constantly existing. But I mean, like, I just don't. I don't know if there's markets there. I should say, like, yeah. And to me, it's just like sixteen is a great number. Sixteen is a a really, really good number to operate a a league like the Frontier League. And I feel like if you're just trying to go to twenty, I can't think of four just really viable markets at at this point. I and I think that if a, a league like the Frontier League would just is just looking to add four teams for the sake of adding four teams because 20 is a fun number so we're just adding markets for the hell of it i i I don't think that's i don't think that's the right way to go about it and i and that's why and i think they're smarter than that so i mean i understand they yes if they wanted to become a 20 team league that'd be just wild to think about but i think they're they're such they're in such a good place at 16 and you know, Nick, they they haven't even got to the point where they've played with the sixteen team league yet, and they won't they won't even be at that point till twenty twenty two. So I think that there's still a long way to go, and I just don't I don't see four viable markets here uh, for them to just go to twenty, and you know, and, and I don't think just adding markets just for the sake of adding markets because we want to get to twenty, and twenty is a nice round number. I just I I don't I don't buy that. Yeah, and like we're going to talk about later on in the show, Norwich, Connecticut, which would have probably been a very viable opportunity or one of the more probable markets, I guess, for a Frontier League team, that's gone to Summer Collegiate. I feel like a lot of the teams that we would have speculated, like, oh, well, they got cut from, you know, short season ball. Is this a Frontier League market? They've roundly said, no, we'll go play college ball. Like Vermont did that. Norwich is now doing that. Mm-hmm. it's like okay well like you said there's just not really the markets there i mean there's always been the rumor around old orchard beach but i mean the stadium needs work and there's a lot that needs to get done to get it up to snuff and i mean it, it really is tough to make it work plus as we're seeing this year the more teams you have the more of an opportunity that exists for things to go wrong and all of a sudden, you also have a lot more hands in the pot. I mean, already you have 16, or I guess technically 15, because you have, uh, his name's escaping me. Oh, Al Dorso. You already have Dorso, who owns two teams. So I guess 15 hands in the pot, all wanting to say what happens. So you're going to add four more hands into the pot to, you know, want to say what happens. I, I agree with you in the sense of, I, like I said, I don't think it, it happens anytime soon. I think the best course of action is let's actually play a full season of having 16 yes. teams. Let's do that for a couple years, maybe four or five years. Let's throw the ridiculous. And obviously when the merger happened, the pandemic had yet to occur. So that timeline's all gone to hell. And frankly, you could probably throw the statement out with it because I mean, anything pre pandemic is kind of, you know, not very worth very much, you know, it's worth the paper it's printed on because everything has really changed. The economics have changed. The situations changed the attitude around the situation and possibly in the markets that they were planning on going into has changed and, too much change has happened to really be able to say that those statements are still good. Uh, but I'd like to see like four or five years of playing with 16 teams to go, okay, everybody's in a good space. No franchises in dire straits. Everybody's healthy and doing well, and then bring in some other teams from there. I think that would be a better course of action than just kind of adding teams, like adding four teams over the next five years. I think that would just be a bit silly to do that. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, so I, I agree with you there. I just the thing is though, I just don't want to rule that out yet because I certainly do think there is still some appetite for doing that. Yeah, 
But uh, with that said, we do talk about, I guess, kind of a new team in the Frontier League. Uh, the Team Quebec, which announced their branding earlier this week. Again, we have kind of a visual topic. So being an audio medium, we're going to try and go through this fairly quick. Because again, uh, we could describe something to you, but it doesn't really do it justice. The link to actually see what this looks like is in the show notes. So go to the website, go to show notes, and then you can uh, find what the jersey and the cap and the logo looks like. Uh and again, this is going to be a butchered pronunciation of French here because, you know, when you barely pass high school French, the bar is pretty low on your pronunciation. So I believe the team name is Equip Quebec. I have no idea if that is anywhere close to right. That is much better than I would do. All right. So I'm going to take that as a win. And we're just going to we're going to keep going from there. And hopefully it's right. Uh, so Quebec is written in a script type, uh, writing that's across the front. And what I'm describing is the logo, but also the Jersey at the same time, the Jersey's not too imaginative. Uh, and over the second E or under the second E rather, there's a fleur de lis. So, you know, the French looking thing that I guess the best, the Saint logo, the logo that the saints have, that's a fleur de lis. That's right by the E, the second E in Quebec. I hope that makes sense. That's what the logo is. There's a cap insignia that's an EQ, and then it has what's essentially a French tilde. It has a specific name, but I'm going to be quite honest. I don't know it, so we're just going to keep going. And uh, an EQ that's kind of joined is the cap insignia. The jersey itself is royal blue. The logo is white, as well as team colors, royal blue and white. And yeah, that's about all there is to it. It's a fine looking jersey. It kind of looks like a Dodgers jersey mixed with a Royals jersey. That's probably the best way of describing it. Yeah, I, I would think that's probably the best way of describing it. I mean, I, I'm not a huge like jer- jersey guy. Well, I'm from Jersey, but you <laughs> I was know, gonna say, uh, uh, well, technically speaking, not, not, not a, you know. So I think it, it looks fine. You know, it's one year, uh, but I, I do agree. It's probably Royals, Dodgers mix ish probably lean more towards the royals yeah but you know it, it, it's fine yeah exactly it's it's a fine jersey it's going to be used for one year and then we're going to move on from it so i mean it's all well and good there uh yeah. and with that said hopefully that segment came out decent and we're going to move to the last bit of frontier league news which is on thursday they announced their hall of fame class because the frontier league is i believe the only independent or partnership league that uh actually has a hall of fame and last year they didn't really announce a class because of the pandemic so they combined the class of 2020 with the class of 2021 i'm just going to list off the names uh because quite frankly i don't know enough about them and me just kind of reading off the stats i don't think would really do them justice because i mean you're not solely in the hall of fame because of your stats you're also there because of the impact you made on the community that you played in or the community that you know you owned a team in or operated in and uh, seeing as you know i'm kind of new i mean we're all kind of new at least most of the listeners to the show are kind of new to the frontier league i really couldn't do it justice so i'm just going to give you the names if you're a frontier league fan you'll know them if not then the segment didn't mean much to you to begin with so they do things by era so the 90s the 2000s the 20 teens and then special contributors from the 90s era is Corey morris and joe pass uh from the 2000s era josh loggins and jared houghton 20 teens jonathan count teddy and mike torres and then the special contributors are Kevin Roach and Rich Saget Jr. Senior. So uh, those are the eight guys that are making it into the Hall of Fame for the Frontier League in 2020-2021. So uh, congratulations to all of them. Yeah, congrats, congratulations to uh, all those inducted. Yep, there's not much else there. I just thought it was interesting to throw that out there. So uh I always kind of thought it was it would be an interesting thing to have kind of like an indie ball hall of fame, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think it would be the problem is you would have to get everybody to work together. Yeah. And and you know, I mean not of course not all indie leagues are created equal, so you know, I, I think I, I do think the Atlantic League should have a Hall of Fame. One hundred percent. Uh, and the American Association should as well, although I'm not 100% sure if they do or not. Quite frankly, I, I, don't, I don't think, think they I've do. ever looked into it. Yeah, no, Atlantic I, League, I know, de- definitely does not. 
Yeah, like I don't. I'm pretty sure the Frontier League is the only one that's done it. And I feel like what you could do is say, okay, and obviously the issue too is like, okay, well, what leagues will count? Obviously, Atlantic League, American Association, Frontier League. Those three are kind of givens. They're the big three. They're gonna get a, a guarantee induction every year. And yeah. then I'd, I'd be fine with like having like one general spot and then two others. And you just put six in a year, one from each group, and you just go with that. Maybe like the first year or two, you kind of like retroactive anyone that's important to independent league ball or important to these leagues in particular, you put them in. But obviously, like if you're going to have a physical building that's a Hall of Fame and more than just like a, a website page listing what these guys did. Uh, it's a lot more tricky because you need, obviously, everything that goes into essentially having a museum and where you're going to host it and everything. But I just always thought that, like, these guys deserve some recognition because, I mean, there's a lot of guys here that they made a career out of playing indie ball, and that's certainly no small feat to accomplish that. I mean, it's, it's extremely difficult to stay in and out on that. And there's guys that, you know, not even just players or managers, like, just, like, front office personnel or team ownership that really created a whole different path, a viable way to get into the major leagues or at least extend careers for hundreds, if not thousands of players. And I just thought that they always deserve some sort of recognition. Like there's so many different players like Lincoln Mickelson is a guy who had a very good independent league career, but you're not going to really find talked about all that much. I mean, even like in Atlantic League circles, he's not talked about all that much, but he's a guy that I thought, you know, deserved some recognition for what he accomplished. I mean, you want to go through like even just more of a, I guess, a contemporary example would be like Victor Campion. He's the dude that's the all time saves leader in the American Association. That's a guy that deserves recognition. That's a that is about as close as you're going to get to a Hall of Fame pitcher on this level of play. So I just thought, you know, it. In addition to adding a level of legitimacy to independent league ball that is needed yeah. for some people, that, that's a really good point. Actually, just thinking about you know all these guys, you think of a guy like Blake Galen or something like yeah. that. Uh, of course, just thinking back into back into Atlantic League history, um, it, there's so many guys who who spend five six years in the atlantic league or uh and of course this applies to other leagues as well yeah. uh but i think it just it, i think you're right it would it would really add some legitimacy i'm sure um i'm, I'm sure the players would, would be appreciative of it especially because you, you've got some guys in indie ball who are probably like who are around like 33 34 years old uh, even a guy like a guy that comes to mind, Wellington Dotel, yeah, or, or, or some somebody like that, um, who at this point, I'm he understands he is not making the major leagues, mm. uh, but he does, but he does keep coming back to play indie ball, puts up great numbers every single year, um, hits hits over three ten uh, every year, and just and no matter what team he plays for, you know, and, and you know what? How about this, Nick? What what about I'm not sure when we would do this, yeah. But, but it, this definitely, this definitely is a segment down the line of uh, we could do a, or we could do um, a mock uh, indie ball, indie ball report, Hall of Fame inductions. This was something I've been thinking about doing for a while, but I wanted to wait until like we had enough of a following to do it, so it hold weight. But I definitely want to do that. Like honestly, obviously, we can't just throw it together in one week. That wouldn't be fair because we wouldn't get all the names that are important to you know get in. And, you know, we're about to go into the season, but I definitely think when we get to the end of this season, so say like October, November, when the seasons are all done and we finished like wrapping up everything and we really start to hit that dead period again, I definitely want to do this idea. I, I really do love this idea. Yeah. Because I mean, no, that'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, it definitely would be. And another name that kind of came up, a lack league name, like a Greg Nettles. Of course. Yeah. Like he's, he's a guy that also was just always kind of around like. There's a and the weird thing too is you can make a case for like other guys. Like, would you put like a Ricky Henderson in here? Because he's a yeah, guy that no. like uh, here's my argument though for it. And you know, we'll, we'll move on from this in just a second. But my argument for Ricky Henderson would be he gave the league not only a a bit of legitimacy because Ricky Henderson's playing here, but B, 
he added an awful lot to the kind of brand familiarity of the league. He did. A lot of people then started going, oh, wow, what was the Atlantic League? And I got to imagine he made a lot of Atlantic League fans. Like in his short tenure in Nork, he certainly left an impact. Now, yeah. I'm not sure if I put him in because, again, I feel like the point of this is more to, you know, kind of honor guys that spent a large chunk of their career here. And of course, if we or when we do this, we'll spend some time coming up with, you know, requirements here. Like maybe you have to play like X number of games and like across independent league baseball. I don't know, maybe call it like 300 games or something like that. I'm just pulling a number out of thin air right now. But, you know, you figure out what the bare minimum requirements would be. And I would be, I'm really interested to see how this goes because there's a lot of guys that spend a large chunk of their career here. But, like, I think there's a lot of interesting debates that could come up from this. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it would be, there. it would be an interest. Let's see, because I think there's so many ways you could take it. I think that would be, that. that that's what would make it such a fun thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's also some guys here that are just so important to just the history of independent league baseball where you'd obviously have to do like a builder's category because there's a lot of guys that, you know, have gotten us to where we are today. And I think like off the bat, three names that would just be automatically in as builders would be Frank Bolton, Miles Wolf, and Billy. I think those three are non-negotiables. Like from everything they did to get us to here, I it just would be... It, you could not have a Hall of Fame and not have them there. Yeah, I, I'm I'm totally with you. Yeah, the Hall of Fame talk out of the way. We'll actually revisit the idea uh, a little bit further down the line. But we do have some other stories to get to this week, and then uh, we'll be done. So no marathon episode this week. It looks like it looks like we'll be done in like a neat hour and change. Isn't that lovely? Yeah. It's a great change of pace from two hours. Yeah, it is. I, I, it, can't, can't keep going with the marathons. Only one and they're appropriate. Exactly. Which I really do feel bad for someone if you haven't listened to like the last two episodes or something. And then this then one comes out. I know. Well, yeah, obviously you're missing out. There's a lot of good stuff in there. But you'd have like, what, about five hours worth of just straight up indie ball to listen to before exactly. you get to this one? Where else can you get that? Exactly. I mean, like we provide a service and it's a damn good one. And sometimes we just kind of go on tangents. And that's the beauty of the show. That's right. Yep. So with that, we're going to reapproach this Norwich topic, which I brought up a moment ago. Uh, Norwich, Connecticut, the home of the, I believe they called them the Sea Unicorns, is the name of the team. Uh, yeah. So the, they they were the Connecticut Tigers for a long time, but uh, but they changed their name for the 2020 season that never happened to the Norwich Sea Unicorns. So they never actually played with the name. Uh, but I guess they're still uh, they're still using the name now. Yeah, which I mean makes sense because now they are part of the Futures College Summer League, and I doubt they would want to keep the name of the you know organization that kind of cut them. Which is really weird that Grand Junction Rockies are still the Grand Junction Rockies, and they didn't rebrand. It's kind of odd there, but I mean yes, like, that is odd. But like, good for them though. They they're gonna hold on to their identity, so good for them. But in any case, the Sea Unicorns and Norwich, Connecticut are off the board as far as possible indie ball markets. They were one I think we all kind of speculated about for a while. But then when you start looking into them, it's like, yeah, it's not exactly the best market in the world. So I don't think anyone else have maybe the Frontier League would have been interested in them. But still, it's a market that's off the board in an area which I'm sure a lot of teams would like to have a team in Connecticut. Although that area just seems like the kiss of death. Mm Mm-hmm. Like between New Britain and Bridgeport, no Connecticut indie ball team really lasts. Like Bridgeport made a very good go. They were there for a while and then the situation kind of grew outside of their control where the city wanted that ballpark area wanted to turn into an amphitheater and when the lease was yeah. up, they weren't going to renew it. So, I mean, that's really not their fault, but New Britain just was, it wasn't great from the get-go. Yeah, I mean Hartford's Hartford's doing well, but they're still they're still a new team. Like yeah. that's that's a new ballpark. I'm actually going up to see uh, Hartford in uh, in early June. I'm very very oh, yeah. excited for it. Actually, see, I always wanted to go to Hartford because that ballpark looks really really nice. It's also called Dunkin' Donuts Park. Like that's awesome. Uh, so you're a Dunkin' Donuts fan? Yeah, I do. I do like Dunkin' Donuts, but not for the coffee. I'm not a coffee drinker. The donuts are excellent. I'll agree on the coffee point, but I will say, like, I'm okay on Duncan. I'm neither pro or against. 
Krispy Kreme's the donut I go for. Absolutely. I want, totally agree with that. Uh, any case, moving on from uh, from Donut Talk, that there goes Connecticut as an indie ball source. We can go on to different expansion, though, because the USPBL is in talks with two to three Midwestern communities to expand. This is something that they were planning on doing pre-pandemic. They were in heavy discussion for the Gastonia market, and obviously they didn't get it. And now uh, they are looking to expand in the Midwest. Uh, There's supposedly one market in particular that looks promising, but nothing is really imminent. Uh, by imminent, they said within the next three months. So I imagine this is kind of a deal where they want to see what the finances look like after having a full season where they're able to play relatively normal. There will obviously be a capacity limit at least to start the season. And then hopefully as the year goes on, uh, the situation will improve to where they don't have to have limits. But I do imagine they want to look at the like at how the finances look out. There's more detail in the article. Again, that's linked in the show notes, but supposedly they took a 75% hit last year as far as uh, losses go. And before the pandemic, they were talking to over 20 cities uh, to kind of expand to. This would be an extension of the USPBL. It wouldn't be another league. So I don't know how all the, you know, kind of business and sporting side of things would go. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to see them expand. We've talked about them before. We talked with, I believe it was the director of operations, Justin Orenduff, previously, about a, actually about a year ago now. Uh, if you want to check that out, go into the archives, take a look at that. It's a good interview. But uh, regardless, yeah, we may have more indie ball expansion because we cannot go more than like two months without talking about that. Yeah, and to, it makes sense because, listen, the USPBL, it, it's been enormously successful. It really has. Yeah. I mean, takes a market, carved out their na- their uh, niche very nicely, and you see all the guys that, they, uh, that they've been able to carve out and even send to the big leagues eventually. Of course, Randy Dobnock uh, uh, with, the, with the Minnesota Twins being one of the, one of the most prime examples of that. So I, I think they're, they're a very successful league, uh, and so I think them looking to expand – in the Midwest, it makes some sense because I think uh, it, they. I, I don't see why they couldn't be an eight-team league, uh, for example, or, or even like a six-team league. It, it's possible, uh, and I think judging by their success uh, with a, with just four teams, I, I think it's a solid idea. I'm interested to see what they do with it. Yeah, absolutely. They definitely could do that. Again, it's just kind of weird though because each of these leagues, they're essentially like permanent circuit leagues because they all play out of the same ballpark. And so I had a kind of a crazy idea last night and I want to know how crazy it actually is and whether or not I'm just kind of making connections that aren't there, there. So we know the Maverick League starting, they're trying to do something similar. They're not paying their players, but they're getting them jobs that are kind of in town to work part-time while they play ball the other part of the time. I wonder if kind of annexing the Maverick League is something they'd be interested in doing. Obviously, the Maverick League's out in Oregon, and that's certainly not Midwest. But it's kind of a similar setup here. I wonder, again, like, would they be interested in going, oh, okay, it's a former market as far as affiliated goes. They already kind of have a four-team setup here. We could go in there, provide our brand and our way of doing things, arguably provide a higher quality of player in that league because we kind of went through that after. I think that was in the marathon episode that we talked about their draft and how there was only like three or four names that we recommend that we recognize on the whole roster there. So presumably you could bring in a higher level of talent there, a market that's probably wants baseball. I just kind of wonder if that's something of interest or if they just want to go, no, we want to build a brand new stadium somewhere. We want to have our own thing from the start and we'll just kind of pick the market we want we don't need to annex another league we don't need to deal with previous owners we don't need to deal with previous league structure we don't want to deal with any of that we just want to have total control over the thing we're doing i don't think it's a crazy idea i i don't i don't think it's a crazy idea at all specifically if you provide that uspbl branding so i I think that could work um and i think that could work i'd be interested to see how that would uh how that would potentially work. There's plenty of kinks that would have to be worked out in that case. But I think, you know, um, if you could provide that branding, they, they clearly know how to run a league like that. You know, I, I, and I think 
I'm not sure how long the Maverick League will last, so I think that that could be a, a future out there, even though the, the two places are not are, are not close uh, in geography, obviously. So, no, I, I don't think it's a um, I don't think it's a crazy idea at all. Yeah, because I mean, like geography wise, I don't think they really care. I mean, if they were looking at Gastonia, North Carolina, that's nowhere near Detroit. Supposedly, in the article, they were looking at a town pre-pandemic in uh, Colorado. So distance does not seem to be an issue, which then also brings me to how is the like baseball side of this going to work? Like, are you going to have like the Michigan division, I guess, play the new division? Like, I assume they're going to have their own seasons where they're self-contained in their own stadium and then maybe have a playoff or something between the two. Or like, I I wonder if that's going to work that way. Or is it going to almost be like maybe a USL soccer type thing or like a USL two thing where like, you have a bunch of teams in a bunch of different cities and then they kind of win their own flight. So like it's all the same league technically, but the USPBL moves from more of like a traditional looking league to more of like a governing body type thing. Maybe. Yeah. I'd say, I I just don't think they're even, I don't, I don't even, I don't know if they would combine and play like a championship. Yeah. It just seems too far to me. Yeah. Um, but I, I think maybe just having like two separate, two separate leagues, quote unquote, could work. Yeah, I, I think that's probably the more likely avenue. I see that going. Yeah, so more of like that kind of governing body type thing, where it's like technically they're both the USPBL, but they're not going to ever play against each other at all, and they're going to be all right. self-contained. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. I, I I'd agree with that. I think that's probably your best case there, especially if they want to expand again and then you have like let's just say a team in Iowa a team in or a ballpark in Iowa a ballpark in Michigan and then let's say one in Tennessee could you yes. in theory have them play each other yeah but it also kind of goes against the express purpose of putting four teams in one stadium so like i guess like maybe for like a playoff or something but in any case however it works out it's going to be interesting to see yeah, for sure. Yeah. So with that, we go to the final topic of the day, which is an American Association topic. It is about Winnipeg, and they are going to start the season on the road. Uh, they will be on the road, and they will be U.S.-based until the border opens up. Uh, supposedly, they should have their new home city finalized uh, sometime next week, if it hasn't already come out by the time this releases. Uh, their training camp will be in Milwaukee. And, uh, yeah, we don't really know where they're going to start the year at. I wouldn't be surprised if it was, like, Kokomo, Indiana or something. I don't think they're going to do another kind of ballpark sharing deal. But uh, it'll be interesting to see here. They said we we hope we'll be able to play home games at some point this year. I'm not sure if they have the same kind of limitations as we saw with Ottawa and the, the Quebec teams like we discussed last week when we talked about the Frontier League. So maybe they'll be able to play there, but we've obviously spent a lot of time talking about the border. I'm not sure how much we want to go back into our thoughts on this, but yeah, maybe. I think I think we kind of talked the the border to death. I'm not sure that Winnipeg will get back at all this year. That's just my view on it. But I, I think as far as what they would do for the U.S., I I'm not sure what I guess I'm not sure which way you lean, Nick. But yeah. personally. I think you got to give them their own ballpark this year. You, you got to find some way to give them their own ballpark. I just thought last year, 2020 was all thrown together last minute. I get it. It just seems so weird to have like, um, to have Winnipeg playing in Fargo Moorhead, uh, with, with like another team coming in. It was just kind of an awkward thing. And, uh, I, I just, I think you got, if you can give them, um, like, their own ballpark, their own community for a year. They could try to make something happen with it. I, I think it would be a much better fit than playing in a playing either with Fargo Moorhead or playing in whatever city, other city uh, in the American Association they might choose. I would, I would really prefer to give them their own. Uh, I'd really prefer to give them their own ballpark, even if it's not the best setup. At least they have something that's that's all theirs. And maybe you can get some fans to cheer for them. Um, and it's not just like this awkward thing where they're like sharing a stadium with an American association team. 
Yeah, like I think ideally that is the circumstance if everything can get worked out. Like the reason I throw Kokomo is because I know Milwaukee had to start their season on the road their inaugural year because their ballpark wasn't entirely ready yet. So I wonder if that's oh, okay. a possibility. Yeah, I I do wonder if that's a possibility. I think that was a bit different. I want to say the ownership of Milwaukee also owned the college team in Kokomo. So it made it a lot easier to say, okay, well, the 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 professional team's going to kind of bum around here for like a month and then we're going to move on from there. I do wonder though, if just from an expense perspective, it's easier to go with a ballpark you already know is an American association ballpark. One that you can kind of, you know, maybe work the expenses a bit better. Plus if you're in like, let's just say Lincoln, you're kind of in the dead middle of the American association, which I imagine is a bit easier on the players as opposed to having to make like a big road trip from like North Dakota to Texas. If you're only going from Nebraska to Texas or Nebraska to Iowa, it's not as bad. Mm-hmm. Although I do think there are a lot of ballparks that could possibly be open. Joplin's one that immediately comes to mind. I'm not sure what the whole situation around that's at currently. I haven't really checked in, checked in on that recently. So I wonder if that's a possibility, but again, I think ideally you would like them to have their own ballpark, but if they're going to essentially be a foreign team, whether they're in one that already has an American Association team or one that doesn't, I guess the lean from the league would be we'd rather have you sharing with one of our teams because it could also help possibly if scheduling needs to be adjusted, whether that be for COVID, which I don't think is going to be an issue. They played in the middle of the pandemic when it was really bad last year and they didn't really have more than one major COVID hiccup, if I'm right. I just don't think it would be as bad this time around. But I do think kind of sharing may just be easier should that become a necessity. Or at the very least, you c- it gives you more flexibility, I think, by being a, a guest at another team's ballpark. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's, that's probably the way. Uh, that, that's, that's probably the way they should, they should go here. But I guess we'll find out. Exactly. Hopefully we'll find this out fairly soon. At least as of Friday night, I didn't see anything. So while we're recording this, unless something came out in the dead of night on Friday, we're still in the dark. I imagine we'll find out next week because, I mean, like, we're only about 18 days or so away from American Association opening day. So they kind of got to figure that one out fairly quick. And, uh, yeah, it's also I just really do want to take a moment to realize here. We are like 14 days away from being able to do an American Association preview. And then the week after that, a Frontier League preview. And then the week after that, doing an Atlantic League preview, which would be kind of weird because they will start to play like the day before. But even still, like, it really is exciting to be able to talk actual baseball again. Yeah, it's almost there. Almost there. I know. It's so great. And then comes the fun part of the year where it's like, okay, we have three leagues going at the same time. And I kind of got to juggle every single league that's playing now to know something about all of their play style. But yeah, exactly. You know, that, that's what we're here for. Exactly. Which I take that every day over last year where it's just talking about the American Association every week, especially because I have to feel like most of our fan base is on the East Coast here. And it's really hard to care about a team that's thousands of miles away. Yeah, I struggle with that. But, you know, it was it was baseball at the time. So Yeah, I mean, it, anything it was, was better just, than nothing. Exactly. So, I mean, you, you obviously got to take that. And so with that, we're out of news this week. So we'll go to the plugs and go from there. If you want to follow the show on social media, you can do so on Twitter at IndieBallPod. And you can do so on Instagram at Indie Ball Report and at AOPB underscore news for all your Atlantic League news, which should be ramping up fairly soon as we're about to get into May. And that means we'll start to see actual roster moves and roster transactions and things getting finalized and league previews and all sorts of fun goodies. So you'll want to follow both accounts to make sure you stay up to date with everything happening there. Uh, you can also find all the links to everything we mentioned here today in the show notes, which are available at IndieBallReport.com. Under the show notes tab, just go to episode number 112 and all of our links, all the timestamps, all everything that is used in the episode will be available there. If you want to go back and listen to uh, any of the episodes we referenced over the course of this show, whether that be the Justin Orenduff interview, whether that be the show from a couple of weeks back where we went on 
for about two and a half hours. And that was after like cutting 10, 15 minutes from that show. I mean, like, God, I, I had that for forever. Um, you can do so also on the website under the episodes tab. Just scrolls whatever one you want and you can listen to it there. Or you can listen to the show wherever you find podcasts. So tune in, Stitcher, Spotify, Podomatic, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Like I said, just about anywhere you can find podcasts, you can find the show. So be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to help the show grow. Uh, with that said, do we have anything else left to add? So, Nick, the NFL draft, uh, the, as we're as we're recording, the, the third round is starting mm-hmm. to wrap up. The first round, of course, was on Thursday night. And let me tell you, the, one of my pet peeves is, of course, in the first, like, 15 picks of the draft, and they want to cut to, like, fans of that team, like, as the name is being announced, because everyone knows who the name is going to be announced. Like, the, people have a pretty good idea coming into the draft, like, who this guy is, how good this guy is, like for the first like fifteen picks. But once you get into like like the late like the mid to late twenties in the first round, and like even the second round, they're still like putting the camera on the fans who are who who of course like let's of course like in like the twenty like the twenty fifth pick of the first round, they pick like some offensive guard from Louisiana Tech or something, and like. <laughs> The, and like the the fans don't know who that is, so they just like pause awkwardly, and they're like, "Yay!" Because we're on camera. It's really weird, and I would appreciate if the NFL, if ESPN stopped showing that after like the first fifteen picks, where everybody knows the players who are being selected. Just please save us the awkwardness uh, of watching fans cheer and act like they know who they who uh their team just drafted when they clearly don't it's just it's just weird just let's keep it to that doing that for like the first 15 picks and you know that that, that's my overall point but just please save us the awkwardness the only exception i'll make is if there's a pick that's way off the board like at least like a lot of teams that are in that range they probably like the fans have probably seen the mock drafts and whatnot so they kind of are familiar with some of the names or they're like, yeah. we really need this position. So they kind of look at a list of guys that are like, you know, really good there. And they knock off the first two or three names and go, okay, I'll be at least like familiar hearing that name. Like if there's a huge, like way, way off the board pick, like a dude that's projected to be like a third or fourth rounder that goes in the first round, then I want to see the reaction. That's what I want to see. Then you can, like, you'll see shock there. Or if a guy keeps sliding down the draft, kind of like how everyone was like on Manziel watch, that then I want to see each fan base's reaction to either not drafting or drafting that player. That's fair. That's fair. But generally speaking, yeah, I'll agree with you. I like watching fans that are either just kind of on their phone because they don't realize the camera's on them or just they're kind of like, who is this guy? And they're all just kind of like muddling about. It really isn't doing much there. Uh, like the only thing I will say about that is when you go to those shots, it does kind of give you a bit more time to just rack up another uh, video to play. So like if you need to find the highlight package for that particular player to rack it up so that way you can run it, going to a live shot of fans does buy you like five, 10 seconds of uh, being able to yeah, quickly move it. So I will say from a production angle, I understand why they're there, but it, I think you can equally just throw it back to either watching the player if they're in person or you could throw it to like your your commentator desk, like your hosts and whatnot. I think you could do that too. So I mean, there's there's options yeah. there, but I agree with you there. Uh, as far as me, all I have to add is the first thing off of my pile because I still do have a pile of stuff here. And the, the thing is, like the Wawa burgers and fries. So I'm not sure like how many people here watch YouTube that frequently. And if you do, what kind of ads you wind up getting? Because I'm pretty sure they're targeted ads. But for me, I keep getting this Wawa burgers and fries. Now, I assume most of our listeners are somewhat familiar with Wawa. But if you're not, it's essentially a chain of gas stations. It's mainly on the East Coast, particularly like mid-Atlantic region. And they always have like a convenience store attached to it. And most of them have like a deli slash kitchen section where you can order like drinks like milkshakes and frozen drinks like that and you can get sandwiches and like mac and cheese and stuff like that your typical stuff and recently they added burgers and fries and i gotta be honest i don't really know who would have a burger or get some fries 
from Wawa. Like, I'm not gonna disrespect Wawa. They certainly have their purpose. Their subs really aren't that bad. Their shakes are actually pretty good. But, like, there's just the thought of getting a burger and fries from a gas station. And there's not like there's a grill back there. So, like, how exactly are you... Are you making these burgers? Are you throwing it in the same thing that you throw like the, the chicken patty in, which is really a glorified microwave to make that burger? Because that really sounds unappealing to me. I, I got to be honest there. So I guess my whole thing here is like, I just, I don't really know who says, you know what? I really want a burger right now, but I don't really want to wait that long for it. So I'll go to Wawa to get it. Like there's a lot of other options. Like the wait time on that, you could go to like a Five Guys or something where I got to imagine the burger is better. Granted, more expensive, but like, I just, I don't say, I don't know what demographics like, you know, I really need a gas station hamburger and some fries right now. I, I just don't, I don't know who they're trying to target with this. Yeah, I, 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 I'm with you. I, there's plenty of places to go for better burgers than, than Wawa. Wawa has great stuff. Burgers is not where I would go for that. Yeah, like, again, like, I just don't see a scenario where that's possible. Like, I can even get, like, the mac and cheese. I can understand that. I mean, it's a pretty simple thing. I don't imagine it's very good, but, you know, I could see it. But this is just, this is a step over the line. Like, as far as I'm concerned, my food at Wawa is kind of limited to sandwiches. I trust the sandwiches, especially like agreed. Especially like if it's a beach day or something, and you're just kind of stopping for like gas or like to grab some drinks, throw in a cooler. Then I could definitely say like, oh, let me order a sandwich. I'll throw it in there so that way, if I get hungry, I have something to eat. Like that's the perfect use of a Wawa sub. But yeah, yeah I'm right there. I just uh, the burger thing just always hangs me up there. Supposedly the fries are not very good either, but uh, that's all I got to add. I mean, yeah, I'm with you there. There's, yeah. be there's better stuff. There's exactly. better places to go for that. Exactly. And like, honestly, you'd be better off just getting like fast food. Like, obviously, I, I gotta imagine it's on the same level of quality and price, mm -hmm. and it's gonna be faster. Like, the only reason you wouldn't do is like you're already there and you just don't wanna make another stop. But Probably, yeah. yeah. But uh, I guess with that said, we don't have anything else left to add. So. Until next time, don't forget to play ball.